Welcome to the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm Cece Chapman. And we are recording once again in our living room in 7th Ward, New Orleans, several blocks away from the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival, which is going on at the time that we're recording this right now. Live at the Jazz Fest. <laughs> Live music doesn't get much better than that. Um, <laughs> we heard that somebody say that right after Arcade Fire one time. It was very funny. Yeah, it was adorable. But no, let, let, let's talk about music because that is what is literally in the air right now. Yeah, we're not going to Jazz Fest this year, mostly because we're preparing for a trip out of town right now. But we've done a little bit of people watching and walking around. So we get like the vibe of the festival, whether or not we want to, because we're just like very close to it hey, physically. I got off the bus early on Friday, several blocks before my stop, just so I could get the vibes, as you say. And we've been watching a lot of like music-related concert documentary type things in the last like few weeks. So it's perfect. That's not necessarily a coincidence because it is sort of music festival season right now. Uh, we're recording this sort of in the wake of Coachella, which is like two weeks of much bigger productions than what you get at Jazz Fest just because it's such a larger space and rich kids from all over the country flock to it. You know, I've been wearing my flower crown for four weeks straight now. <laughs> it's digging into your flesh. <laughs> it has grown into me. <laughs> it's a crown of thorns at this point. And, you know, the biggest, I would say, concert film that has come out of, you know, that spirit would be Beyonce's Homecoming, which is a documentary of her Coachella performances from 2018. Uh, She did two weeks at Coachella, and the documentary flips back and forth between the two weeks. She doesn't try to hide the seams there either. It's like everyone's wearing yellow in one performance, and everyone's wearing pink in another performance. And the symmetry of that is really beautifully edited together where the choreography is so precise and so like well executed that they can switch back and forth between the two colors and everyone's like pretty much in the same position and it has this like very vibrant flashing look to it because of that the film is a movie by Beyonce she's like the director of it and she's also the director of the stage show that you're watching Uh, over like I think eight to ten months she put together this like elaborate basically love letter to HBCUs, um, historically black colleges and universities. And what this film does is it gives you most of the concert and interspersed in there's a little bit of rehearsal footage and a little bit of her talking um, in sort of interview style about what she was trying to achieve with the show and basically how much like blood, sweat, and tears went into putting it together. Yeah, it's not just the stream of the concert with some great editing tricks like flashing back and forth between the colors kind of like uh the monkeys film head where they do a similar trick using black costumes on white and then white costumes on black it's not just that it's also a thesis statement talking about black art and black culture and how her actual thesis that she states very clearly using quotes from toni morrison among other authors is that Black culture is beautiful and she needs to show it at its peak in order to demonstrate like why they have value as people like to be like no 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 you cannot like oppress us you cannot be racist against us these are all bad things look at how great we are and to instill a sense of pride you know and to just you know document this this extraordinary experience that she had so much of herself invested in. And every time she uses a quote from like Toni Morrison or Du Bois or somebody, she always states which 
HBCU they went to, like after their name. Mm-hmm. And her backing band is a lot of like marching band um, and like steppers and, you know, dance troops and basically that whole culture sort of like blown up to this giant pyramid of bleachers. So even if you were way in the back, like thousands of people away from her, you would still see something. Like the stage show is this very tall, large thing. Uh, she's like, exalted on this platform that like uh swings over the crowd and there's two huge megatron screens on either side of the stage that are life size Mm -hmm. so you see the entire show in triplicate if you're like live there in the audience obviously for us with cameras we're looking at it at a much more intimate scale than anyone in the audience really could see it but just like so big a show so much show and i was actually kind of surprised because she has like the marching band intro and I thought that would be sort of like a sort of like initial like welcoming into the world and like just sort of setting the stage of what she was trying to accomplish. But it ended up being a through line throughout the entire movie. Like her entire backing is all of that brass and all the, the uh, stomping and drum lines. Yeah. Which reminded me a lot of Mardi Gras. The very opening like 10, 15, 20 seconds like is of, you know, somebody with a snare, a woman with a snare. And then, like, that, like, burst of brass that follows her sounds exactly like Mardi Gras. Like, it sounds exactly like our Mardi Gras brass, which, you know, arguably our best Mardi Gras high school brass band is St. Aug. And St. Aug's entire raison d'etre was to raise strong black men who, like, could become pillars of society in New Orleans. And they have, like, the, they have the HBCU, like, attitude of you know catholic school and like marching band and like they are truly excellent in all ways and hbcus are like largely a southern tradition Mm -hmm. and the marching band like black culture we have in new orleans is very southern as well so there's obviously a lot of overlap there Mm -hmm. but then there's also like these bounce beats from like dj jubilee are Mm -hmm. mixed in big frida's voice appears in the soundtrack at some point Solange has been living here for years and she she appears on stage. There's like a lot of New Orleans tie-ins. Yeah. I believe she even second lines with an umbrella a little bit in the like uh, rehearsal footage towards the end. Yeah. Yeah. No, like the New Orleans ties are very strong, especially for us who live here and experience it on a daily basis. Like for us to see that like in her work. And New Orleans has always been a strong throw line in Beyonce's work. She's always had a very strong love for New Orleans. And she's always like had very strong visual references to New Orleans in her work. Yeah, I was watching the extended mix of uh, Get Them Bodied last night because it's been in my head since we watched this movie. <laughs> and there's um, a sequence that's basically bounce, but without the Trigger Man beat. It's like this like clapping rhythm. Oh yeah, and the Trigger Man beat showed up in Oh yeah, exactly too. Like... And you know, someone's twerking uh, in the video. This is from 2007. And their booty shorts they're wearing have like one Florida de Lee on each cheek. It's like, okay, this has yeah. been a, like a long standing tradition within her work. Yeah, it's not like just like Lemonade obviously was filmed, you know, in and around New Orleans. Lemonade has a lot of references to New Orleans. So it's it's not like that's like a new thing in her work. Like this, this goes back long before that. She has always been knowledgeable about like our culture. And if you don't catch that, that's fine because like the larger point of it is about the HBCU stuff and about like Black Pride and Black is Beautiful and that kind of like elevating the artistry by grabbing as many different influences and dance styles and like philosophical like texts she can to like bring this one big like black excellence stage show to Coachella, which is like a traditionally like white rich kid yeah. playground. And she points out 
multiple times throughout the show. She is the first black female artist to ever get to headline at Coachella. So she's like letting you know. I love how she like, celebrates that for a second. And then she's like, ain't that some shit though? Like, <laughs> Yeah, no. She's like, yeah, no. It's like anytime WWE like pats themselves on the back for doing a thing for the first time. It's like, yeah, you should have done that like 30 years ago. Or it's the not... Grammys or the Oscars or anybody. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's not, it's not great that you're celebrating that this is happening just now for the first time. It's 2019 for God's sake or 2018 her instance, but. So we never watched the live streams, even though they were free for a while. No, we're really lazy. But I'm kind of glad I waited. This is like her version and like this is her vision, sort of purely what she wants us to see and what she wants us to understand from the Coachella experience that she crafted. It's over two hours long as a movie. And the concert film, there are a few great ones, but the format's not always particularly strong unless you care about the music already. What do you think of like Homecoming as a film? I think it was really brilliant what she did um, because, yeah, now I am quite glad I didn't watch the streams because the streams would have been one two-hour performance and another two-hour performance unedited, just, you know, going from camera A to camera B. And this this was honestly a technical feat because she is cutting back and forth between two different live versions of the same choreography. Someone had to sit there and pick out which audio track and which bits of which audio tracks they were going to keep in sync with their visual like media and then match that up with the other visual like track that they filmed knowing like what went into that and like thinking about that especially in light of one of the other films we're going to talk about today like knowing the amount of work that had to go into editing this like i one i see why it took an entire year for it to come out and two, like, I love that that much work was put into something that is a concert film. Because, yeah, concert films, like, unless you care deeply about the music, they usually don't offer much by way of film. It's essentially just a straight shot documentary using, you know, three, four, five cameras tops. Just, you know, it's it's a linear thing. But this breaks it up and makes it nonlinear. For the most part, the concert plays out in the order that it actually went. But you're switching between two different weeks throughout it. You're getting short five to ten minute clips of behind the scenes work at different like intermission points so that way she's able to maintain a certain pace usually you get kind of tired during concerts especially when they're two hour long concerts so this allowed her to take advantages of lulls to maybe get more introspective to really punch up those highs and to just enforce the peaks and valleys like to modulate the entire experience the number of camera angles in this is insane yeah no normally yeah <laughs> normally there's no more than five cameras it reminded me of the beastie boys film um i fucking shot that and that one they handed out like digital cameras to like i think the first hundred concert goers so they had like angles from like all different places within the crowd yeah uh, and this has these like crane shots and these, you know, sort of professional on stage things, but they also have these like handheld, almost looks like shot on film entries as well. Yeah, it looks like some stuff was shot like on phones from the crowd, but using Instagram filters to make those things look like Super 8s right. or 16 millimeter film to kind of even out the quality of all the different like smaller cameras footage. Cause you know, some people might have a Motorola, but some people might have an iPhone. <laughs> so, you know, by throwing that filter on there and adding the digital grain, it's like a, that's a quick way to like normalize all those. <laughs> and when you shoot on film too, or at least like give the, you know, digital filter that makes it look like film, it's sort of like immortalizing it as this like important, like 
especially like in the backstage footage, they always have this like pure cinema kind of like mm-hmm. aesthetic where they're like, they cut things together very quickly and very romantically uh, so that you feel like this like swelling emotion that what you're watching is like, you know, elevated art. And she specifically wants you to recognize how much hard work went into it, which is a lot of what the backstage banter is about as well. She had children, like twins, right before she started training to do this on and stage. And it was very physically difficult for her. She had to have an emergency cesarean. Yeah. Um, because one of her two children, uh, their heartbeat faltered. She also had preeclampsia, which is... The only cure for eclampsia is delivery. <laughs> so, like... Not an easy birth. They were born somewhat premature because of the cesarean, because they were twins. And her body was was physically wrecked from it and uh, by her accounts. Like You would never know watching the actual concert. Like, mm-hmm. she's such a perfect human being. No, like, the first, like, shot we get of her, like, at the apex of this pyramid, like, me and Brandon both just kind of had this moment, like, where we gasped and are just like, she is so perfect. <laughs> like, what an utterly, like, perfect human and she's made that like image of perfection like a large part of her public persona like even that like flawless i woke up like this Mm -hmm. uh, rhetoric is like kind of a lie that we all accept and here it's like her showing us how much work actually goes into crafting that image yeah immediately before she says that line like i woke up like this before she launches into that specific song there's one of those back scene back behind the scenes uh clips and She's not wearing makeup. She's talking about how much she had to sacrifice in order to do this because, you know, she had a baby body. Her abdominal muscles had, you know, been sliced across to get those babies out. So all that had to knit back together. She had some baby fat. She, you know, had lost some muscle tone because she wasn't working out as much uh, when she was pregnant. So she had to regain all that. So she's talking about how she gave up meat. She gave up fish. She gave up carbs she gave up sugar she gave up alcohol like she pretty much gave up all foods as far as i could tell um except for maybe vegetables uh and fiber but yeah and like she's like working out constantly she's doing the big like heavy ropes you know and like to help build her upper body strength uh she's like crying at the gym because she's so exhausted um but she's like pushing through and like no matter how much they throw at her she just keeps going and then immediately launches into, you know, she's flawless. She woke up like this. And we all just saw how much of a lie that is that she worked incredibly hard to wake up like that. <laughs> she is also doing this, like, for the audience, obviously. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not out of vanity. No. And especially in this instance where it's, like, for a black audience and, like, making sure that, that like, black is beautiful, black excellence, like, achievement is, is uh, on full display at Coachella specifically. Um, and she says in the movie, like, I will never push myself this hard again. Like, this is the hardest I've ever worked in my life, and I'll never do this again. Which makes you appreciate, you know, an already incredibly enjoyable spectacle of a stage show even more. Like, it just feels like this once-in-a-lifetime kind of achievement. Yeah. And, yeah, the movie really captures that spirit, I think, even though we obviously weren't at Coachella. She, you know, doesn't do this I am so perfect thing necessarily out of her own vanity. She does it for a theoretical, like, or a philosophical purpose that she states very clearly. And, you know, she's a millionaire, billionaire. She does not need to ever push herself this hard. She could have phoned it in for Coachella and it still would have been a pretty good show. Um, But no, she like wanted there to be this one documented like moment of perfection in her career. And then she wanted you to know exactly how much work went into that perfection just so you could never say like, oh, she just like floats through life. She doesn't put in the work. No, she puts in so much work. And to me, that's very like different 
sensibility than what went into the last film we saw from her, which was Lemonade, mm-hmm. which I appreciated as well. But that felt like reading someone else's diary. Like oh, there's something so like intimate. <laughs> deeply embarrassingly like personal about that film. Yeah. And this feels like it's for other people, and it's like her putting on a show for other people's benefit, like explicitly so. And I don't know, it just felt like a very different sensibility than the last movie. So it has its own texture to it, which I guess makes sense because you're literally performing for like thousands of people. Whereas Lemonade, there is no audience, you know, it's like her expressing something within her own personal life. Whether one person watches it or millions of people watch it, she would have made Lemonade exactly the same way. Right. And this is something different. It's like something that's trying to please you. And, you know, she has a two-hour catalog of songs here, and there were still, like, three or four of, like, my very favorite Beyonce songs that don't make it to the screen just because she has so many goddamn songs from the last, like, 20 years of being famous. And it's not like she held anything back. She, Mm -mm. like, hit after hit after hit on the screen. If she couldn't fit in an entire song, she at least, like, did it as a medley. Yeah. She did several medleys, but they were always really weird. Like, she'd always, like, rework the music or do something interesting with it where maybe she changed up the instrumentation. Obviously, the instrumentation has changed for every song because of the HBCU, like, the brass and the uh, drum lines. Another thing I wanted to bring up was that when a female auteur or director or, you know, any other kind of creative voice kind of comes into the scene and controls so many aspects of you know both their own image and the work they create there can kind of be this like negative diva image of them they can be accused of being difficult to work with i remember one of my relatives worked as an electrician and they really fucking hated martha stewart because i really loved her and like i like talked about her fawningly as a kid because she was so proper she was such a good homemaker (laughs) and like i remember their insult about her was that when one of their friends who was also an electrician was working on the set for her, she was just like such a cunt. Like, you know, like she like told them what to do all the time, like told them exactly like what wattage she wanted each light at and like controlled everything. It's like, yeah, that's like what a male director would do. So like, why is that an issue? So I feel like part of the reason why she showed so much behind the scenes stuff was to show you that she's an auteur like any other male auteur. Like don't try and like say that she's being diva-ish when she has all these demands just like Steven Spielberg or Quentin Tarantino or, you know, any other director, she's she's controlling everything for a reason because she has a very clear idea of what the end product is that she wants. And while we usually applaud male directors for having, like, that level of creative control and that level of vision, we usually don't necessarily applaud female creators for having that same, like, eye for detail. Yeah, it's not a stretch to say this is a film by Beyonce. Like, that's not ego. She, like, controlled every image and sound you hear. Someone else sat there and edited together all of those shots the way she wanted them. Someone else was in charge of the cameras while she was busy on stage performing, but she storyboarded that thing with them. Like, you never actually see storyboards. You just see her having conversations with people. But, like, essentially it had been storyboarded from beginning to end. And all of that is drastically different from the second concert movie we're talking about. Uh, one we saw in the theater yesterday (laughs) called Amazing Grace. This is a film that was shot for television in 1972 in a church over two nights, and it's Aretha Franklin singing gospel songs. And the record they recorded in that span of time was the number one selling gospel record in the country and it was of all time, and it was supposed to have this like television documentary to help promote the record as it came out. But the documentary could not have been completed in 72 because Cindy Pollock, who was the original director, 
didn't think to use clapperboards to sync up all the cameras, uh, which is insane when you watch the film now. Um, there's so many handheld cameras all over this tiny little venue trying to capture the experience of Aretha Franklin singing these gospel songs and editing all of those different angles and all these different like mic inputs from Aretha and her like reverend that's providing a lot of backup vocals and like the choir and the crowd. There's all these different audio inputs that have to be synced together with all these different cameras. And so it was a logistical nightmare without the clapperboards to sync everything up. And this was pre-digital, so they had to do it with film. So Warner Brothers scrapped the project, and it sat in a warehouse until 2011 uh, when a couple people started syncing it back together. And in 2011, they had a completed project. Like, it was ready for theaters. And Aretha Franklin said no. (laughs) She was, like, frustrated, I guess, with the past, with either the you know, technical difficulties that kept it from coming out in the first place or with, you know, some other, there's some like tension we picked up in the room as well. She didn't seem like particularly happy or like powerful the way that Beyonce seemed at homecoming. Like she seemed like she was performing tricks for other people (laughs) pretty much. But in 2011, they completed the project and Aretha Franklin has died since and her family okayed the release of it after her death. So now in theaters, we have this like digitally restored concert film that is probably very different than what you would see if it came on television in 72. It's got a lot of like in-between takes, you know, flubs and false starts, a lot of crowd banter and just sort of people filing in late. And it's a little shabbier than probably would have came on television in 72 because it's trying to capture the experience of being in that church more so than just like being a visual aid to this like concert album. Much smaller crowd than Coachella. It's probably like (laughs) uh, less than 100 people crammed in this tiny church in Los Angeles. Uh, The first night, there's many empty rows in the back. Mm -hmm. The second night's a little more full. I guess the word had gotten out. Also, like a couple celebrities like Mick Jagger and uh, some like uh, famous like gospel singing people like showed up for the more rockin' set that was in the second evening. But yeah, just a very different film from Homecoming all around, like in its intimacy and in Aretha Franklin sort of being this like you know, amazing singer, but singing these like gospel songs, it seems to please other people more so than to please herself, I would say. There's times where you can see her getting visibly frustrated with the way like a take is going. And I don't know if, I don't know what her relationship was with uh, the other people there really. Um, So there's times where it looks like she wants to have them stop and start again, but doesn't. Other times, you know, she like whispers to somebody and then they carry out her orders. But it it does appear that she does not have the level of like power that Beyonce has, you know, that like she has to kind of go through other people to get what she wants. Or maybe she's trying to avoid the appearance of being a diva. A lot of people did like kind of rather unfairly like malign her for being like very diva-ish in her attitudes later in her career. But, like, there's times where, like, you can see that she is, like, not happy with the way it sounds. And this is her product. She is selling herself. And yet, like, it's not coming out the way she wants it to. Like, what is she supposed to do? Like, that's what she's supposed to She's supposed to stop and start again and until a lot she gets it right. And the, like, question we have of, like, what she's thinking and what she's trying to express is because we don't hear her voice at all unless Mm-mm. she's singing gospel. Yeah, she's not mic'd, like, in between stuff. The Reverend... Uh, of the church is in charge of the proceedings. He introduces her. He says what she's thinking, what she's feeling for her. Uh, and she... well, she's so glad to be here right now. She's so happy, y'all. Yeah. And she presumably is as much of a perfectionist as, like, Beyonce is, but she doesn't have the, like, 
auteur voice in in this project. I would say uh, it seems like the Reverend sort of running the show and using her voice to perform these vocal gymnastic gospel songs. And I mean, the movie's interesting for that. And it's interesting for the people watching and stuff. But her voice still brings out these like very deep emotions in mm-hmm. uh, the crowd. And I was getting like infectiously emotional from that. Like yeah, I was no, catching like, secondhand emotions from watching people weep listening to this woman's beautiful voice. Aretha Franklin's voice is was is just so powerful and beautiful. Like the vocal range, the inflection, the emotion she's able to put into it, like stuff that cannot be taught. Stuff that you just like have the knack for or you don't, and then also spend your entire life perfecting. It's glorious to see. And you see people just like breaking down physically listening to it. Yeah. And this is maybe something that I would have appreciated seeing Homecoming in the theater for because that, that's a Netflix release. I don't know if we said that, but that's like a straight to streaming release. Whereas this is in a proper theater and just being surrounded by her voice and like a really beautiful sound system was probably the best advantage of seeing this movie on the big screen because as interesting as all the people watching is and stuff it's a very limited film and it's like visual palette Mm -hmm. but the sound was just so overwhelming especially we watched in a near empty theater because it's like weeks into its run already and i was very just like overwhelmed over like the uh vocal soaring she was doing like beyonce's voice is beautiful and has such a range and it's so fun to listen to and there are times when, like, Beyonce rattles emotions, like, out of my, my soul. But, yeah, no, just listening to Aretha is just, like, earth-shattering sometimes. Just that gorgeous voice. It is a real shame that we're not going to get to see Homecoming in theaters, just because I would have loved to have that same in-your-face, in-your-ears, like, blare of the brass. So it felt almost like a live show that we would have gotten in theater. Like, they could have made money. Yeah, I felt that way with Dirty Computer last year, too. Even though it's not a live film, I wanted to see like the visual and like audio things of that in like a proper theatrical environment. Well, you know, maybe if we ever do a uh, film festival, we'll just do just music. <laughs> that, that never got to see the proper theater. Never got to see the proper theater run. We'll beg Netflix to let us do it. I mean, even Lemonade that would have you know yeah. benefited from a theatrical environment. I think. Yeah. You and I are not religious people. I think that's fair to say. No. <laughs> and we still got like. I'd say some emotional responses out of this film, even if not just secondhand through other people. Like, you know, there's like a whole history with like black culture in America and how it's tied to like finding strength and faith and religion to get you through like really troublesome, horrific experiences. So that was easy to catch. And it's something we sometimes experience in person at Jazz Fest a lot mm-hmm. uh, in the gospel tent. Yeah, we, we do go to the gospel tent. And we went to this instead yesterday. It felt kind of like the same thing. <laughs> yeah, no. You know, I joked on, on you know, Facebook because as everybody knows, or well, how, as everybody who is like a Jazz Fest person knows, uh, this year is the 50th anniversary of Jazz Fest and Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones were supposed to come to New Orleans to headline Jazz Fest. This would have been their first time back in New Orleans in 50 years or maybe over 20 years, a long, long time since they've been here. And it was going to be this big deal. It was going to be like a homecoming. It was going to be like this full circle for Jazz Fest. And then they had to cancel because Mick Jagger needed heart surgery. And so like going to what was essentially the cinema equivalent of the gospel tent. And then, oh, look who shows up, Mick Jagger. (laughs) He's here at my Jazz Fest, my theater, you know, air conditioned with a great sound system, Jazz Fest. 
and there's there's Mick Jagger attempting to slip in the back row, but of course, the second he is there, Sidney Pollock's camera crew cannot stop, but like focusing their cameras on him and like creeping closer to him and like trying to get his reactions oh, as yeah. he's listening, which is kind of what he does not want. Like he he's not there for that. <laughs> he tries to hide in the back row early on and kind of gets sucked he fails. In. Yeah, <laughs> he ends up getting much closer to the audience by the end. And even Sidney Pollock, I don't think this would have happened if the movie appeared on TV in the first place. But even Sidney Pollock becomes sort of a part of the story. Mm-hmm. You see him sort of lurking around in the background, playing with like light meters and directing the different cameras to where to go. Sometimes uh, he has a handheld camera himself, and he's like trying to like creep in for shots. And halfway into the second night of the concert, someone spills water all over the cables. Uh, so there's technical difficulties in the concert you're watching. And Sidney Pollock is lurking around in the background. So the movie has this sort of like meta narrative to it as well. Like this is a you know troubled project that's like seen some shit, but. It's kind of like a miracle to finally get it in this sort of form that we got it now. I, I really don't think that if this appeared in the 70s on TV that it would be as significant of a work as it is in its no, current state. No, it probably, probably would have disappeared, honestly. There's yeah. a very good chance it would have completely disappeared from the public consciousness. It's got a lot of interesting context. And, you know, if you have any appreciation of Aretha Franklin as an artist, which I'm sure most people do, that's, that's not like an obscure artist, you know. Controversial uh, opinion. Aretha yeah. Franklin can sing She's good, good at it. Uh, it's worth seeing, I think. Even if you're not a huge gospel fan, it'll win. It'll win you over. Yeah, no, she does. She does some of the traditional gospel stuff, which is more to my liking. Um, and then she, you know, does like kind of like pop versions, kind of of gospel. It's not exactly pop, but she's like retooling some of the traditional gospel instrumentation and vocalization to more like modern tastes. And so, yeah, there's like a wide range of of gospel within this. And even like a song like Amazing Grace that you've heard like a thousand times, she still does something interesting mm-hmm. and like powerful with it that you've never heard before yeah honestly i thought the movie's gonna end after she sang that song just because it was you know the title of the film and it you know that was the halfway point (laughs) (laughs) well maybe uh less impressive as like a technical achievement as either the films we've talked about so far we also saw another coachella film it's a childish gambino film called guava island it's a sort of deliberately minor like laid-back fairy tale movie that Donald Glover filmed in Cuba with Rihanna. And it starts with Rihanna like narrating this storybook fable about this island that's made of love and war. And the two elements of love and war are fighting with each other. And it's hard to connect that to like the story that comes after. Like once that 2D animation goes away and you get live action instead. But pretty much there's like a battle between art and commerce here where like there's this beautiful love in the music and these beautiful silks that are produced on this island. And there's this like warmongering, like fascist control over the island from this cargo company, Red Cargo, that wants to control those beautiful arts. They want to like turn the silks and turn the music into commerce. Donald Glover is at the center of this. He's trying to woo Rihanna with his beautiful music. And Red Cargo wants him only to work the yards and encourage other people to work through basically jingles that sell red cargo as a fun place to be and fun place to work. It's a very simple love story, I'd say, between the two of them. And basically what you get is this sort of movie musical asides where he just sort of drifts into a few of his more famous singles from his last album. Uh, Most notably, This Is America. I think that was the biggest hit from him in the past year. And there's like a big dance number to that where he uses these like Iggy pop type like body contortions in this like very disturbingly surreal way in the middle of this like sort of laid back love story. 
And then it turns into this like workers' rights overhaul of the Red Cargo company towards the end. And the whole thing's directed by Hira Mirai, who directed the This Is America video and also a lot of episodes of Atlanta. This is a smaller film than the other ones we watched, but it, it was released to coincide with a Childish Gambino performance at Coachella a couple weeks ago. Uh, what, what did you think of Guava Island? Oh man, you keep calling it minor and like they sound kind of insulting the way you're like saying that. So I have I have a little, I have a few concerns about that. Um, well, what, what, what do you think is not minor about it? Or what, what, are, you, what are your concerns about it? I think that a huge amount of work went into it. Um, so? Even though it's, I don't know, it's like saying that like art from the Caribbean is minor because everybody is relaxed. Just because it's a relaxed vibe doesn't mean like a huge amount of work and talent went into it. Like it's a laid back film, and like the yeah, it's laid back because they're on the islands. <laughs> and like their version of like workers' resistance is to party, which is a very funny like it fits the vibe of the film. Like you know, I mean that's not that's that has theoretical underpinnings like across like worker like theory, like to take away like the ability to play and to imagine is like one of the goals of capitalism and imperialism because if you if you can't play you can't imagine if you can't imagine you can't make a better future so like i think i think there are very serious like theoretical underpinnings to this and i think the whole thing was like a very well thought out fairy tale about colonialism and imperialism and capitalism except like rather than rather than have like a lot of white people in it like as the colonialists like he does shoot it from the perspective that like that can come from within a culture as well but no like i thought i thought it had very serious like theoretical underpinnings and i thought like sure it's laid back and like the stakes aren't particularly high until they actually are i mean i'm describing it as minor in that it's like a sort of renegade indie production with large set pieces and thousands of extras and it's not homecoming or something though it didn't take i feel like it was made in a couple months and not like yeah but it was filmed on location which is not easy he keeps talking about a music festival which to us sounds like a couple people like playing music in a field no he's talking about carnival he's talking about he's going to throw an entire like musical carnival like a mardi gras uh, complete with like costumes, puppets, parades, fireworks. <laughs> so they talk about things like they're no big deal, but like in reality, they are kind of big. Carnival's not easy to create from scratch. Like everybody needs to make hundreds of costumes. Do you think that was staged for the film that party? It's kind of hard to tell. Uh, I think I think it was. Yeah, because there were like a lot of overlapping costume choices. There was one specific person who designed a lot of the costumes. Okay. The costume Rihanna wears at the end is, like, the most breathtaking part of the film for me. Yeah, no, that costume is gorgeous. I know, like, they hired a lot of Cuban artists to create stuff. And a lot of them, you know, created stuff using recycled materials, using, you know, stuff that would otherwise be thrown out as garbage. So you see a lot of, like, bubble wrap and tin cans and, like, things like that being repurposed into, you know, these big, beautiful, like, headpieces and crowns and robes and... I know, I guess I just do see it as more of a laid-back film than you do, like... It's laid-back, but that does not mean it's minor. Like, it's like saying that, like, New Orleans culture isn't as important as, say, the culture of Prague because we are so much more casual about our culture and we don't build, like, huge stone cathedrals and we don't have big, fancy art museums. We, like, dance in the streets and so our culture is minor compared to theirs. I'm talking more about the fact that it's, like, a 50-minute movie with a very simple narrative and, like... In its more quiet moments, it literally is just watching beautiful pop stars vacation in Cuba. Okay, yeah. That part that part makes it, like, yeah. you know. And it's beautiful and to it's, look at. The cinematography is well done, but it's, like, 
there's not like insanely edited shots there's not like a whole lot of like complicated you know camera work that's done it's it's shot to maximize how beautiful it already is yeah um but not to like do anything else with it but i mean also like he's playing around with surrealism really heavily throughout the film but it never overtakes the like it feels like it starts up like like the this is america scene it's him taunting this like fellow coworker who's like too serious about the job pretty much and uh wants to like work so hard that he can escape to america and he's like uh we're already living under the iron fist of america capitalism and he's like mocking him with this like surreal like like i said earlier like iggy pop like contortions like his body's just fucking like bizarrely choreographed and it feels like it's starting to sort of jolt into this, this like surrealist non-reality at that point but the fantasy never really fully takes over at any point i mean no it's still a fairy tale but no it never like fully devolves into surrealism it never becomes non-narrative the narrative never fractures it is a relatively you know simple storyline of a boy loves a girl he writes a song to impress a girl he wants to make music with his friends his boss says don't do it he does it anyways there are consequences like that is the entire plot and that part never breaks but then like when there are crowd scenes there's weird little flourishes within that like it's it's more magical realism than it is surrealism so the moments of surrealism are just like demonstrations of the magical part of the realism and it ends on a very New Orleans type ritual. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how much you want to give that away, but it's it's something that we see here fairly yeah. often. I'd say it's a specific ritual that is unique to New Orleans and to the Afro Caribbean diaspora. Yeah, our version of it is the most famous, just because that is what has been popularized in Western media, and people now know it and can rent it for any occasion they want. <laughs> Outside of its original purpose. And you hear New Orleans described as like the northernmost part of the Caribbean all the time. And, you know, you feel it here, I think. No, we're the least functional city in the United States. (laughs) We're the most functional city in the Caribbean. We are the northernmost point in the Caribbean. I don't know. When I say minor, I guess I don't really mean it as an insult. I I just wanted to point out to you that minor is often used to degrade or denigrate often black culture or... Latino cultures that do have a more relaxed pace and even though like you might be dancing in a casual way you mean it for like life or death like right. it's dead serious to you being this relaxed <laughs> but I guess just seeing it like up next to like homecoming and amazing grace it doesn't feel like we don't much see like we do not see touchstone. Donald Glover doing push-ups getting ready for this <laughs> right, right. so it's hard to say really like how much like homework you did before this no um and like yeah we don't see the hours of choreography that like went into those scenes you just can like watch it and be like oh donald glover was just born that good a dancer he wasn't i promise right it feels effortless in a way that homecoming was purposely made to not feel we could see the effort on yeah, homecoming. she reinforces how much she effort. reinforces how much effort went into it whereas there is no mention that anyone put any effort into Guava Island, even though we all know that they did. They make a point to make it look effortless. Like it's the, the like music a, um, flows out of them. It's more like a Roger Corman type production to me, where people had like a gap in their schedules where they all could line it up, and they like ran off to Cuba and filmed this thing like Renegade style, and then like within a couple months edited it all together into the the hour long fairy tale you see. Yeah, and obviously I'm a big fan of that kind of filmmaking. In yeah, general. no, it's it's. It makes filmmaking democratic. It makes it something that we can all maybe do. And it gives you that punk energy of, I just saw somebody do this thing. When I think about how they did it, that makes me realize, oh, I could probably do it too. (laughs) 
Okay, so this one's available on Amazon Prime. Yes, only if you have Amazon Prime now. Homecoming is available on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Amazing Grace is in theaters, probably not for very much longer. No. Uh, if you, I'm sure it'll play on like TV or something. I'm sure there'll also be a DVD release. Neon currently has the um, theater distribution for it. And I'm Time sure Magazine also has like a stake in it somehow. And yeah. Spike Lee as well. Yeah, Spike Lee was one of the, the executive producers who helped get it finished and on the screen. So yeah, like I'm sure there's going to be some kind of physical media release for this one. Unfortunately, the other two, it's unlikely. Amazon Prime does sometimes take their properties and put some on DVD. Uh, but Netflix obviously is less interested in doing that. Although I did recently see Stranger Things exclusively on DVD at Target. So maybe so they're testing the waters. Maybe they're testing the waters for that. Hey, everybody go buy Stranger Things, whether or not you <laughs> like it, just to show Netflix that we want things on DVD. Because I work at a library. If something is exclusive to Netflix, it means a library can never own it, which means that if they ever decide to drop it from their service, we can never archive it. Like, Song of the South is a awful film as far as how it depicts African Americans. But it is a very important cultural artifact. But because it was never released on any physical media, except for maybe one or two, like a handful of copies of VHS tape back in like the late 70s or early 80s, no library has a copy of this. Like if you are studying like African-American depictions in the media, you have to go to the Library of Congress to watch Song of the South because they have a copy of the film. But Disney will never let you have it again. Like what if something happens and like... Netflix decides, no, you cannot ever watch Beyonce. And they take her from us. <laughs> or God forbid Disney buys Netflix. <laughs> or God forbid Disney buys Netflix. <laughs> like, we need physical media so that we can archive it. So that we can have it for the future. Please, guys. This is my plea. Be mad at Netflix. Well, in the meantime, if you had to recommend just one of these three movies. Oh. I kind of liked them in declining order. Like, I really loved Homecoming. I really liked... Amazing Grace, and I liked Guava Island as well. Oh, I don't know. It depends on what you're in the mood for. I think Guava Island is great for like a relaxed afternoon. Yeah. But also you want to like think real hard about like labor rights and be mad at capitalism for a minute and look at some pretty costumes. But like, obviously I'm going to say Homecoming is like the objectively best because it like makes you feel so many different emotions like over the roller coaster of watching it you feel these great like i can do anything powerful highs you feel these like i love you so much let's take a moment of quiet like contemplation lows low issues obviously i'm gonna say homecoming brandon this is very unfair of you i feel like that's the one that we're most likely to be talking about again at the end of the year like one of our favorite movies of the year it's possible that might be in that conversation the moment where they're standing everybody's standing in the pyramid and it's swapping back and forth between the yellow costumes and the pink costumes and the choreography does not have a jitter or a break it's an achievement it's an achievement brandon agreed sure i just spent all that time building up guava island and here i am <laughs> still not my favorite though because homecoming was made and obviously that's begun to be hey, all these movies are good i'm not saying those yeah. are good i'm just brandon <laughs> i ruined it well see y'all next week while i'll ruin something else <laughs> i'm looking forward to it <laughs> bye everybody
Swamp Flicks. Oh, yeah. The great Swamp Flicks. 